This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Hello, uh, now actually talking. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Uh, we are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. And uh, we're at halftime of this Utah Jazz-Milwaukee Bucks game, currently 53-47 to the Jazz. Um, good timing. It is good timing. So we're going to, while we've got this 20-minute segment, uh, we want to talk about the Dante Exum starting for Trey Burke thing, which I think is the biggest Jazz story of the day, and I think we can see how that's been affecting the Jazz in this first half. Um, and, you know, whether or not we think it's a good idea overall, I also want to talk about the Jazz's offense, and then we also have NBA starters, or sorry, all-star starters announced today, so I want to talk about that a little bit during the show. So, again, if you want to um, tweet in or call us during the show, let us know what you thought about the Jazz's first half and or any of the moves made today. Uh, you can always tweet us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett over here on the other side, and um, you can always call it 800 so, how about that first half, first of all? How about that first half? I missed a small portion of the second quarter driving over to the station. Uh, and and I think like the very last minute of the first quarter or so. But it seems like the status quo was mostly maintained in that time. Um, interesting. And, of course, the first thing that we're going to want to talk about with that is our very first subject. And, by the way, we planned this to be our first subject before we, <laughs> we heard the news today. Is that Dante Exum did get his second NBA start tonight. Now, the difference between this and his first one was that Trey Burke is healthy in this game. And that the, the decision was made by Quinn Snyder that he thinks Dante will fit a little bit better in terms of both in terms of Dante's role with the first unit and with Trey's role with the second unit in terms of being able to generate a little more scoring punch. One thing we've talked about lately is how with their, their depletion wing roster the Jazz's second units have been had a lot of difficulty scoring the ball and I think this is a nod to that this is kind of maybe putting another playmaker in with more with the second unit what are your kind of general thought both game in this game so far and what do you think of the moves in general yeah so I mean I, I like it I, I think Trey as you point out is more of a natural scorer than Dante is I mean that's backed up by the stats he's putting up um, 12.5 points per game uh, is using 22% of possessions rather than just 14 for Dante. So it's clear that Trey Burke right now is a possession user. And given that, it makes sense to have him in the on the bench away from Gordon Hayward and Ennis Cantor and, and you know later on Derek Favors. I also I, I, I don't know if it's a brilliant move, but it's kind of out of step for the Jazz to put in the, the rookie point guard over, you know, maybe not the established veteran. He's only a sophomore in Trey Burke. But this is, this is a move that the Jazz haven't, the kind of move that the Jazz really haven't made before in their, in honestly, maybe even their franchise's history. I would agree with that. And, and although I'm, I kind of like that. To be totally honest, yeah. I think the Jazz are going in a, in a little bit of a new direction, and this is this is one of several examples I think we've seen so far of Quinn Snyder saying we're not doing the status quo here. We're doing things. He's the coach. He's this is his call. And now, here's the thing with Dante specifically is that does it maybe fit even a little better because of when we've been talking about this as well. He's been a little bit timid. Right, he's right. been a little bit not maybe not quite what we were expecting in terms of the attacker. Uh, that we thought he could be. Now, of course, we're going to preface this entire conversation with the massive caveat that, as I wrote in my piece on Exum earlier this week, he's 19 years old. 
his trajectory to this league is basically completely unique and that it's obviously completely impossible to judge him completely this early. Right. We've only played 43 games. Yeah, exactly. So, and of course, those 43 games are the only 43 high-level competitive games he's played in his entire basketball career. 42 and a half. 42 and a half, excuse me. <laughs> 42 and a half. He's, yeah, but he's played good minutes in this one. So, um... And more specifically, do you? I mean, then part of the title of my piece was "Has he hit a rookie wall?" Do you? First of all, do you believe in rookie walls because that's a, it's a concept that's debated. And second, if so, do you think that he's a candidate for one and or experiencing one? I, I mean, notably, Quinn Snyder doesn't believe in rookie yeah. walls. He mm-hmm. said that in a in a press conference earlier this week. I do. I mean, it just makes a lot of sense, right? That like, sure, these guys are paid to play basketball, and so they should be in peak physical condition. But quite honestly, Dante Exum hasn't played this many games in his basketball life before, yeah. you know, and, and then you look at how many games college guys play. And, you know, besides that they're playing 40 minute games rather than 48 minute games, but they're only playing 30 to 40 games, depending on how far they get in the conference and the, in the tournament and their conference tournament, etc. Like there's gotta be a wall there where, you know, maybe it's not a game 42, maybe it's a game 62, but all of a sudden you're playing more basketball than you've ever played before every single day of your life. You know, honestly treating it like it's a job rather and than at, a, a hobby like it is in college. Sorry, and at a higher level of intensity as well right. with the best athletes in the world. Yeah, I mean, the, when Dante Exum playing fellow Australian high school players, it's a lot easier for him than it is against, you know. Yeah, absolutely. NBA now, that's, that said... I don't think it's unfair to to worry just the tiniest little bit about the fact that, especially for a guy whose initial scouting report indicated that one of his strengths was going to be creating his own offense off the dribble right away, that he's kind of not been able to do that at all. I don't think it's we're remiss to note that while also noting the previously noted caveats that he that there's a lot of time for him to develop into the into that type of a thing. Now you had some statistical comparisons in terms of guys with a so his usage for the season is 14.7 percent, meaning he's using. 14.7% 14.7% of possessions while he's on the floor, and that's a number that has gone down each month so far this season. It's good. It's gotten less and less, which would give credence to the rookie wall right. thought. But who are some other players his age or around his age historically that have, and especially ball handlers, that have had some of the same stuff going on? Yeah, so I looked it up, and you know, use, thanks again to Basketball Reference for this. As always, you guys are lifesavers. Uh, and, and so I looked up who are some similar players to Dante Axum, guys who are 19 or 20, who have used this view of possessions. And, and quite frankly, the the evidence isn't good. I mean, basically, we get names like Mo Harkless, Sergey Karasev, Daniel Gibson, Daniel Booby Gibson, since I can gotta say that him, on the air. Got to call him Booby Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, then there, are some, there are some better examples in, in uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, um, tonight's opponent, and then Joe Johnson, if you expand it to 17% usage. But it, I, I think it's worth noting that Dante Exum is, is below that. You know, he's... He's honestly almost at a record-setting pace for someone as young and as drafted as high as he is to, to be putting up this few of shots. Now, that being said, in the first half of tonight's game, all of a sudden the starting point guard, he's shot seven shots, six of them from the three-point line, and four of them have gone in. You know, you're happy with 12 points and that sort of production from, from the field thus far. Absolutely, and maybe part of the idea was that some of the reason he wasn't getting those shots was that he was being asked with a, with a bench unit to play too large of a role that he wasn't necessarily ready for yet at the tender age of 19, and that with better players who can feed him better shots, the, the Gordon Haywards of the world, that it might be a slight bit better for him. I know that holes could be poked in that theory really, really easily, and it's just a, a very general thought there. Now, 
Is there any credence to the fact that maybe the team scheme goes into his usage being as low as it is? That the t- the team is very all inclusive. It's very uh, kind of equal opportunity where the sh- where the open shot is. That's who gets it type of thing. Uh, uh maybe. I mean, Trey Burke doesn't have the same problem, right? Yeah. Trey Burke has, shoots twenty two percent of shots and also plays point guard. That pretty know, much but... deflates that argument just like, <laughs> right there, like instantly. Right yeah, away. I, I I don't think that's what's going on. I mean, I think that Dante is legitimately afraid to shoot anything that's. He's, af- un- he's afraid to drive, right? Like yeah. he'll take the, the three-point shots just fine, but he's he's not he doesn't have the handles really to go and to and drive to the hole. He doesn't have much other than a, a good first step to get by people and finish. And you know, hopefully that's stuff that develops, but right now it's just not there. And I think you're right that he can get those kind of shots, the things that he's good at right now with the starting lineup. I mean, look at look at tonight though. For example, he's not it's not like he's distributing the ball. He only has one assist. It's Jingles who has six on the mm-hmm. other side of the starting backcourt. Yeah, and of course that that would speak to me. And I'm I'm totally fine with that sort of thing. I am not all about if you're a point guard, you have to have a million assists necessarily. And I think the team scheme and context has a ton to play into things like that. Right there, I, as long as assists are coming from somewhere, I don't necessarily care where they're coming from, especially in this type of a scheme. So I'm fine with that. I do want to see some more aggression from him, but again. As we said, and as we'll continue to say, 19 years old, extremely unique, a lot of room yeah, to improve. But I, I mean, I think you can say that too often. I think you can. It's true. I, I think I, you know, I'm a, I'm honestly a little bit worried about Dante Exum. Uh, I guess this half notwithstanding. <laughs> and uh, the other question, uh, you know, we've been looking at a lot of the Dante piece of this move, moving Dante into the starting lineup. But that also means that Trey's moving to the bench, which I I, I think is a better role for him. And I mean, we've talked a little bit about maybe we see Trey as a future backup. But I, I'm really impressed with how he took this move uh-huh. for him to say, you know, yes, I've been a leader. Yes, I've been a college player of the year. But I'm going to be in the back. I'm, I'm going to come off the bench tonight and help this team win. I mean, I honestly expected Trey to be a little bit salty about it. Absolutely. And you know what? It's just another on a long instance of I've, I just continue to remain so impressed by the way this guy carries himself. You, you may pick a bone with various things that he does on the court, and that's totally fine. But the, the way this guy carries himself and responds to things like adversity like this, the way he responds after a two for 19 game against Atlanta where he's just as even keeled as the other games. I love it. I, that's the kind of stuff that makes me want to see, think more heavily about how we can f- figure out ways to keep this guy around, even if, hypothetically, Dante Exum does turn into the superstar we hope he turns into in a couple of years. I really like that attitude. Those are the guys you need. You need guys who are over themselves, as the, yeah. uh, as, as I was having a Twitter conversation about earlier today. Yeah, no, that's true. So that's, that's a Greg Popovich quote, yep. right? That he's looking for guys who are over themselves. Because everyone in the NBA was really, really, really good in high school and really, really good in college, you know? These are the stars of their basketball leagues that have moved on to the NBA, and all of a sudden they're not the big shots anymore. And I, I, I think that's a real adjustment to mm-hmm. go from being the alpha star to the beta or whatever the C-level star is in, in the Charlie, The Charlie star. Um, what? And, yeah, and, I, I, you know, and I, I think it's good that at least Trey publicly is there. I don't know if privately he's you know, cursing out Quinn behind his back. It, it may be, but... It shows a lot of maturity to, you know, only half hour after this decision is announced to talk to the media and say positive things about it. And it says a lot about what 
Trey thinks of Quinn Snyder. Dude. Absolutely, I fully agree. And yeah, uh, that that last part is probably the most important. It's that, like this type of a move. I think there's lots of potential cities where this this would be met with outrage potentially, or not even necessarily outrage, but just a, a large amount of shock and almost a who does this guy think he is type of thing in terms of the coach. And I think it, uh, this is just a showcase for the tr- the trust that's there with Quinn Snyder, which is a really high level. Now, this does take us into the theme that I think Quinn is trying to respond to with making this this switch in the lineup, which is that the offense recently for the Jazz has not been very good. No, and I all. think he's trying to find ways to move his personnel around a little bit and juice things up in that manner. What do you think a little bit about the... Uh, uh, talk to me, Andy, about <laughs> what you think about the offense thus far. No, so I, I think there's... They've been scouted a little bit, right? And, and a lot of it's just that they played the Jazz, the Spurs and the Cavs, which are two very good teams um, over the last two games. But I, I think, A... They've been scouted. Teams are going underneath the pick-and-roll on Trey, underneath the pick-and-roll on Dante. Basically, everybody but Gordon Hayward is, is a non-shooting threat on this team. And so they're giving them a lot of space, and then they don't have any spacing from which to work um, inside the paint to get the easy layups, etc. So that's a big problem, number one. Problem number two is without Alec Burks or Rodney Hood, you're starting and you're starting Joe Ingles, who you know is averaging 3.3 points per game, I believe. That's, that's non-ideal for a starting shooting guard. And then you have either Elijah Millsap and his 32% shooting percentage or Elliot Williams, who's played a grand total of, you know, 20 minutes thus far in his jazz career. You're playing basically non-NBA players out there, which defenses are just backing off of. I mean, we saw last night with the Jazz and the Cavs, LeBron was assigned to guard Joe Ingles, which, first of all, is hilarious. <laughs> but then, second of all, that just allows him to play center field, right? Like, that yep. just allows him to get steals to devastate everything else the Jazz do because if Joe Ingles is over there, quite frankly, LeBron doesn't have to guard him. He can just blow up the pick and rolls on the other side of the court. Pretty much, and we saw it happen several times. I think LeBron finished with four steals last night, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and that's, you know... But what you mentioned about the in terms of the lack of depth that that really hurts in the NBA today. The NBA is at a point now where if you have one or two major major zeros on your offense, teams are just there's no question about it anymore. Teams are going to hone in on those players and they're going to realize that they can leave those guys completely and that they can essentially play five on four defense with you, knowing that those players aren't going to be able to hurt you and accepting those shots every time you want to get them. Now, all of this said. I have seen, beyond just the move that we saw tonight of inserting Exum with the starters and bringing Trey off the bench, I have seen a few just tiny little things from Quinn that I'm really enjoying so far. They haven't stuck yet. Like what? No, I'm curious. Yeah, they haven't stuck yet. We don't see the results, but I've seen, first of all, I've seen just a couple of, I love counters. If you know me at all, I love counters. <laughs> I love teams that, run, this is why I love the Hawks so much, everybody does now, but I was loving them, I would like to say, before most people, I because they have a standard set of plays, and those plays by themselves are tough enough to stop when you've got good players. But then you add in a little tweak here or a little tweak there, a counter, a little different way that it goes, and teams are not ready for that. They'll have planned for what you they think you're about to do. The Jazz have a couple. Of, I saw one last night out of a timeout where normally Hayward would come, uh, well, a pin down screen would get a pin down screen from Ennis Cantor and run out to get the ball at the top of the key. Okay. But instead, they switched the pick around at the last second. Hayward screened for Cantor, and Cantor popped out and got a jumper, a mid-range jumper out of it. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying drawing up plays for a mid-range jumper is always great, but 
I like that they're putting in little bits of the little bits of counter there. They're running a lot more stuff. The win favors is in the lineup. He's not tonight, but when he is, that's getting him the ball moving towards the hoop. That's not just pick and rolls. Like you can do other things besides pick and rolls to get favors the ball while he's going to the hoop. One of the most dangerous in the league while he's doing that. The results aren't there, but I've been enjoying just seeing the little tweaks. Yeah, no, I, I I've seen those two, and you know they're they're nice. But I, I, it's just not going to – it's almost necessary in order to have, like, an NBA-caliber offense with the players that the Jazz are throwing out there mm-hmm. right now, especially in the bench unit. And quite frankly, it maybe even hasn't been NBA-caliber. Over the last five games, they're the third-worst offense in the league, right, just behind the Philadelphia 76ers and Indiana Pacers. Ew. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's not pretty, especially for what's been an average team overall yeah. um, on the offensive end. I, but, I do like, – oh, sorry. you. But it, it, it's good to see – I. I it's something that honestly we haven't seen sometimes from the Jazz is, is running those counters. So, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of reflects how much practice at the time that the Jazz have had, especially last week when they've had two or three days off. Absolutely, and you see that. And, and uh, you know, in the end, a lot of it comes down to a common phrase you hear is it's a make-or-miss league. You look <laughs> at the entire year, the Jazz are, I think, third worst in the league on all open jumpers because we have the sport view data now that allows us to, to view those things based on how far the defenders are away. If you take no defender within four feet, only jump shots for the Jazz, meaning wide-open jump shots, they're shooting right around 36% for the year, and they're even worse since the start of January, meaning they're getting the shots. And I think they're actually, I would have to check it again, but I think they're top 10 in terms of the number of these shots they've generated and the percentage of these shot of their total shots that they've generated as open shots. But they're just, they don't quite have the guys who are making them yet. Right. And that's, I think to me, that's the probably the largest thing of all is that it's, the, the skill level just still isn't collectively quite as high as you want it to be. Yeah, it'd be, it would be nice if we had good players or at it, least it, good shooters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, I mean, you know, this, again, this half notwithstanding, the Jazz... First of all, hit a franchise record uh, number of threes in this first half with nine. <laughs> or actually tied it. So. so I look like a genius. <laughs> and then second of all, as uh, J- user Jamo on Twitter points out, when was the last time that J- the Jazz scored over 50 and a half? I mean, he says, sure, the Bucks are different than the Cavs, but the Bucks have actually had a pretty good defense. They've like the second best defense in the league in the last month or something like that. Or I've, I've, That statistic might be wildly <laughs> off, but, but it's the, somewhere. They've been very good. courtesy of Ben Dunn. Yep, I do it all the time, you guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's I think that all the pieces are in place, if you will, for the future success here. That once you get a few more guys that are going to knock down these shots where other guys are maybe missing them, I think a lot of things are going to change. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and I, let's let's transition a little bit from skilled players being not on the Jazz to the All Star starters announced today. Wanted to talk about that as our, our third point in this first segment. Uh, First of all, I, I like the lineups. I, let me just read them off first of all. In the Western Conference, it's Stephen Curry, uh, Kobe Bryant, Anthony Davis, Blake Griffin, and Pau Gasol, or sorry, Mark Gasol. And then in the Eastern Conference, John Wall, Kyle Lowry, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, and Pau Gasol. So first time we've got brothers matching up in the All-Star game, um, which is kind of fun. But uh, what are your initial impressions on those All-Star lineups? I mean... Knowing what I know about the process of selecting the All Star starters, I have no problem with them. My my thoughts go further into the fact that I I strongly strongly despise the format with which we select our All Star starters, and I can I'll tell you why if you're interested. I don't actually care who starts the All Star game. You seem like you care. No, no, no. Okay, I care who makes the All Star game, and the fact that the fan vote determines five of those twelve players to me is the problem. Let me ask. Because it does matter for guys like Kawhi or mm-hmm. Kyrie Irving, who 
get literally if he would have been named a all-star starter would have made 10 million dollars more over the mm-hmm. course of his nba career um over the course of his next contract even so you know this sort of thing does matter that being said i i don't hate it i mean i think the fans deserve a voice in here and you know they oh they totally do but okay, I have a so different suggestion. I, I want to hear it. My suggestion, and it's really simple. It's honestly one of the simplest fixes you could have because I care about legacies. And I, I, I wasn't even meant in thinking about the whole Kyrie situation or Rose rights or anything like that when I made that statement. All-Star games are used as a barometer of a player's career, right. which, fair or unfair, that's what happens. And I, I personally, one of the main reasons I really enjoy sports so much is I just, I, legacies are a big thing to me. The all-time greats, that's a, I like those things. Like, that's why I root for LeBron. That's why I've been rooting for him since he was, uh, you're a front runner. It's exactly, sort of. <laughs> honestly, sort of. Like, I don't even mind admitting it. I, I like to see guys that can push the thresholds of, of historical greatness. I really enjoy that. And All-Star games go into a player's legacy down the road. And, when you've got Kobe Bryant getting voted into the All-Star game, despite not even remotely deserving it, there's some player on the back end of that, might so, be a Gordon Hayward, might be a Clay Thompson, might be somebody like that, who misses an All-Star game that later on when their career is being looked at, that's one fewer accolade that they have, and I don't think it's fair to them. So my, what's your fix? My fix. Instead of having the fans select the five All-Star starters and then having the coaches select seven more reserves from there, I think you have the coaches select the entire 12-man team and then you let the fans vote on the starters from there. That way the fans still have a voice, but they don't have the deciding voice in terms of players' legacies where we can see Justin Bieber getting Kyle <laughs> Lowry's vote total up by going on Twitter or but whatever. But Kyle Lowry deserved to be in that game. Oh, he totally did. But the the idea that that sort of politicking is actually what's determining, potentially I like determining player. I, I, I think that it would be a lot... A lot less harmful and a lot more likable, in my mind, if it was only to determine who started while all 12 slots for the actual game were already determined fairly, if you know, if you see what I mean. I mean, I, I get that. I, I get that we want you know this to be some sort of objective thing, um, and having the fan vote takes, the, takes away from that. But, like, it's fun. Let, it, it's an all-star game. It's not like they're competing seriously. It's not like, you know, all-star MVPs matter, for example, because... They don't try for the first 46 and a half minutes of any game. Totally agree. Again, for me, it's just about the end of career legacy and that there's, you know, some guy is, is getting screwed out of his career and ending legacy because he misses a couple all-star games because Kobe Bryant needed to make them. And that to me, I just don't. And again, this is just Ben caring about stuff that very few other people in the world <laughs> care about. Or no, ben, I, I don't think so. I mean, you, there are a lot of arguments about who the all-star starter should be and, and you, you know, you're amongst those, but uh, we've got a tweet for, for example, from Joe Anderson at Marvin is Joe on Twitter saying, agreeing with you, saying fans should vote on the starters after coaches pick the all-star teams. We would avoid more snubs and avoid injured players. Exactly. And I, I just think that's a super easy fix. You still let the fans be super involved because to some people who starts that game does mean a great deal. And that's and that's something that people can express their opinions on and you can still do your Bieber politicking and, the whole, and everything yeah. like that. I would have absolutely no problem with that. Plus, you'd still have at least... Mo, very, though a far larger percentage of the time, you'd have the actually deserving guys being the ones who ma- are making the team and their and having their legacies reflect that. Okay, <laughs> fine. No, I I get your point and it makes sense. I just I like having the fans involved and I think that's one of the great things about the NBA is that they are involved in this voting process. They do have a voice in this. So anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. But on the other side, we're going to be talking with Amar from SLC Dunk. We're going to be talking about some synergy stats, how the Jazz's offense this year compares to the Jazz offense of old from Jerry Sloan, Ty Corbin, etc. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. But the Jazz's turnover problems are a big part of this offense uh, 
the offensive struggles recently. I mean, you just can't be giving up the ball that much. On the other hand, they've only forced three turnovers from Milwaukee. So, yeah, that's not ideal. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and agree. No, <laughs> 15 turnovers in, what, like 26, 28 minutes of play? Not ideal. Well, let's go ahead and talk to all that Amar of SLC Dunk. He's been running the stats on the Jazz's offense um, using the Synergy Sports Tool. And, and there are some interesting conclusions that he came up with. So, first of all, Amar, are you there? Yes, I am. Cool. Well, it's good to have you on the show. Oh, it is definitely my pleasure. And I love listening to you guys. And I am just, you know, going to be quite quiet because, you know, you guys just know so much more than I do. So <laughs> I'll try my best to keep up. Well, it, it doesn't it doesn't look like that with the articles you posted this weekend on. Yeah, or actually, let's see, I guess it was Tuesday um, on how the Jazz offense is doing. So first of all, let's kind of back it up and look at this historical perspective of how the Jazz's offense has changed from the Jerry Sloan days to the Ty Corbin days to now. I think there have been three very different, very uh, unique systems that those coaches have run. What are the changes on the floor that you're seeing and and that the stats show? Well, over the last 10 years, we've looked at, you know, straight-up flex offense, the type of offense that we all grew up watching, you know, passing, cutting, pick and roll, guys moving without the ball and getting rewarded with the ball. And um, because of personnel and because of the way that, you know, things went, when Jerry had uh, said goodbye, we went to a more of a post-oriented offense where people were standing and watching. There were some tweaks <laughs> to that, but uh, you know, and, and to the credit of the of the general manager and what we were trying to do, we were trying to compete. And when you got a guy like Big Al, if you're not giving him the ball, you're not using him correctly. So I, I kind of understand that, but we don't have a guy like that. You know, you can't post up Rudy Gobert ten times in a row. Right. So. Uh, Quinn Snyder Why not? Is, well, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> okay, well, it, it works in 2K. I, I don't know if you guys. <laughs> so let me but, like, uh, how big of a difference is this? Uh, I guess I should have let you finish, but how big of a difference are these two or three systems um, in terms of just how efficient uh, and you know, the, in terms of the kinds of shots that the Jazz are taking? Well, I, I think that we can't divorce the efficiency at all from the personnel and the coaching style, like. You know, Darren Williams running with Memo, that's a completely different system than what we have right now. Right. And I think the idea was that it was more of a 1960s, 1970s offense that the Jazz used to run. The emphasis was on getting the best possible close shots. Today, with what Quinn Snyder's doing, he's coming from a completely different system. He's studied under the best. He's been an assistant under quite a few great offensive coaches. And what the Spurs do is what we're trying to do the best possible shot is the most open shot as opposed to the best possible shot is, you know, Matt Harpering flailing to the, to the rim or something. So it's all about getting open shots. You know, it's going to be Dennis Lindsay's job to get guys who can make those. So what have you, now that we've got the more modern, if you will, the Spurs-esque Quinn Snyder system that's come into play, what are some of the specific changes that you've noticed that maybe that the synergy numbers tell us? Oh, well, for one, it's it's all about getting people the ball in some sort of movement. Like, there is the idea of moving the defense away from where you are so that there becomes this vacuum for another player to get into. And we're seeing a lot more pick-and-roll action as a result. You know, the last few years, pick-and-rolls were kind of down. I would have liked to see more of that. In most of the Jerry Sloan data that we have, 
they were not necessarily running a lot of pick and roll either because there was no John, there was no Carl. So what we're seeing right now is probably like what the new NBA wants, because if you watch any game, every team is running pick and roll almost every third play. But it's kind of like a look at what we were doing before, we being the Utah Jazz. Um, so it's exciting for me to see that. I like the pick and roll. It seems to be working, especially when you have big men finishers like Cantor or Gobert or Booker or Jeremy Evans or this other guy. I don't know. Eric Favors. <laughs> He's all right. Beast mode. Yeah. No, that's a good point. So I, I'm curious, too, and then you also kind of looked at the individual players and how they fit um, and, and kind of the relationship between getting touches and then actually performing well on the floor. So I, you broke them up into tiers and like an excellent tier and a very good tier. What were the differences and, and how did you see uh, the Jazz kind of shaking out within those rankings? Okay, yeah. Well, these tiers are actually the tiers used by Synergy themselves, and that's okay. their percentile rank compared to the rest of the NBA. So it's not me arbitrarily saying that, oh, well, you know, maybe Alec Burks isn't that bad. It's actually the data showing that. So uh, well, what I found interesting was the people who are taking the majority of our touches, if you will, on offense, are actually doing really well with it. So it validates not just the X's and O's, but also what's happening on the court. You know, the guys who should be producing are producing. And I think that's exceptional, especially when you look at the fact that you know, we're a very young team. A lot of people don't expect that expect well, but they are. They're a very good offense when it's clicking. Uh, the other thing that was really interesting were players who are not necessarily getting a lot of touches are still efficient. And that's something which is a hallmark of Terry Sloan teams, and it's nice to see that come back. Very nice. And I think that's kind of a, if you will, a, a cream rises to the top type of situation, because as we know, the system that Quinn Snyder's trying to insert here is one that, as you said, the best shot is the most open shot. And that doesn't, that spans the entire roster. That's not that there are certain players that shouldn't be shooting. You want everybody involved. And the fact that the better players on the, the ones you'd perceive as the better players on the Jazz roster are the ones who are rising to the top with the best efficiency anyway, I think kind of proves the effectiveness of the system. Now, now, I do have one question for you from your article, and this is one of these things where the numbers that I'm seeing are just completely 180 reverse from what my eye test is telling me, and I want to figure out kind of where I'm going wrong on here, like what's up with my eye test, and that is the transition points. Your article notes that the Synergy information tells us that in terms of a per-possession attempted efficiency, the Jazz are the best team in the league in transition, but... I mean, my brain exploded when I saw that stat because the, when I watched the Jazz, I would have instinctively put them in the bottom five for that category. Trey Burke has not been very good at running the, the break in transition. He always tries to finish, as we know, never passes out of it and, and not, is not a very good rim finisher. Joe Ingles has a ton of issues there, too, and it really is a microcosm for the whole team. The whole team has been really, really bad finishing in transition. Is there? Do you have any kind of nugget for me that can... Um, explain this for me so I can understand. Is it maybe the fact that the Jazz are pulling out of many transition opportunities early and therefore Synergy isn't classifying them as transition opportunities? Or am I just really bad at watching basketball? <laughs> well, no. My brain exploded as well because I came to the same idea. It's like the eyeball test tells me that, you know, how can we be this good? Because Trey Burke is messing it up every single time. Mm -hmm. But... Um, what it is is partly, yes, that they do go out and transition, but because they cannot get anything, they have to you know, circle back and set up an actual play. But the interesting thing is that out of every single person who's played for the Jazz this year, 
The only ones who are bad at transition are Elijah Nosap and Trey Burke. Trey Burke is listed as below average, and we've discussed that. Everybody else is excellent and very good at finishing. Hmm. So, so uh, I, I guess it must be just my me seeing the the fact that that um, emphasizing the mistakes that Trey is making more largely than I am am giving positives to the the good plays that other guys are making. Although I man, my mind is still kind of blown on this because I see this every game. It's one of my biggest nitpicks. I tweet about it constantly about how the Jazz have chances to attack a numbers advantage and either a don't attack it or b just attack it with this awful timing and don't get a bucket out of it, which is just kind of unacceptable and. As we speak in this game, they're getting destroyed in transition by Milwaukee. Who's and that's not because the Jazz aren't finishing; it's because Milwaukee is getting a ton of turnovers and, and coming back down the court with numbers advantages and capitalizing. I agree. Uh, you, and the other thing is the fact that Utah just doesn't go into transition enough. Mm-hmm. A product of that is the fact that they're not playing defense enough to get a transition opportunity. So it's kind of like a small sample size. It's only about twelve percent of all their offensive plays are listed as transition plays. Is that a very like oh, sorry? Uh, I, I was no, gonna no, say, go ahead. I was going to say, is that a very low percentage league wide? Like, are the, is that do most teams have a higher percentage of their finished plays in transition? Um, most of the playoff teams do. Okay, so it, it can, it's more indicative of the fact that this is a team that can't defend, and as a consequence of that, they are behind the curve in how much they get into transition. But Trey Burke aside, they should be they should be solid. As it says, they're actually the best team in transition, according to the data that I have, which is up to game 40. I haven't looked at it today. So. Yeah, I I mean, I, I think that's an interesting thing where the stats can kind of show us, a, kind of tell us more than the eye test almost. Mm-hmm. Tell us that, you know, sure, the Jazz aren't pushing it a lot, but they're being efficient when, when they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, one last question before we have to let you go is that your conclusions using the synergy data on the Jazz's defensive side of the ball um, how they're ranking this year in terms of the different sort of plays that they are uh, allowing? Well, I, I guess that's it. It's The defense is always going to lag behind, and defense has always been a trouble spot for the Jazz, even in the Stockton Malone years. We need to learn how to close out better because that's the number one place where we were getting killed. The other thing, the surprising thing that blew my mind was that Utah is getting beaten up in the paint on post-ups. I think that we see this too, that if there's a big guy who can bump Gobert out of a defensive stance, then he could make some space and get a shot off. That's something that Rudy's going to get better at, but, you know, <laughs> that was crazy to me to think that we were getting eaten up on post-ups, but we are. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, the Jazz's big men, to me, aren't spectacular one-on-one defenders. No, um, and that's a complaint I've made with, with Favors a couple of times, is that when they've been played him at center, which they still have a lot, even though Gobert's emerged, he's he's getting beaten up by those guys down low. So I think that intuitively actually does make a little bit of sense. Yeah, and I, I also think it's interesting that's, that the Jazz aren't contesting the open jump shots. That's something that we've heard from Quinn Snyder time and time and again, that for whatever reason they're not finishing their play defensively by making a contest. Um, you know, kind of the more intelligent hand-down, man-down from Quinn Snyder, if you will. Well, I kind of have an idea on that, and that's, again, a mixture of all the available resources that we watch. Is, we watch the games and we look at the stats. It's the fact that the Jazz defense has to commit because we don't have strong enough perimeter defenders, and that creates that domino sequence of having someone inevitably be open. So uh, hopefully with this Trey Burke and Dante Exum thing, if we can get better perimeter defense from our starters, perhaps that means there's less of a need for defensive help, and as a result, less open guys. Makes a lot of sense. 
All right, so thank you so much, Amar, first of all, for giving me the opportunity for, at SLC Dunk when I first started. That was a big deal. But then thank you again for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it, and you do a lot of great work over there, so thanks again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Your brilliance would shine anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, thank you. That's all that Amar. At, you can follow him at all that Amar on Twitter um, or read his stuff at SLC Dunk. We're going to go ahead and take a break, but on the other side, we're going to be talking about some transactions that the Jazz have to make a decision on in this upcoming week. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of Salt City Hoops. Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. Feel free to tweet us about this game or anything in Jazzland. It's currently 73-77 bucks um, with a four-point advantage. It's been a, a turnover fest thus far, but the Jazz are making a little bit of a comeback here. Behind the, the three-point shooting, they've made 13 threes thus far, including five from Dante Exum. Um, starting tonight in place of Trey Burke and has done a pretty good job. I want to get in, though, to a question before before this game ends, just because it's something that the Jazz have to address this weekend is this 10-day this contract question. So currently they have two guys on their second 10-day contracts. That's Elijah Millsap and Elliot Williams. And basically, at that point, you can't give them any more 10 days, right? So mm -hmm. uh, you have to sign them for the rest of the season or let them go and sign a new guy to a 10-day contract or leave that roster spot open. And quite frankly, I think they've got a difficult choice there. First of all, Elijah Millsap playing a lot of t minutes. Um, Jazz have gone to an eight-man rotation tonight, and he's played 12 of those minutes thus far. So, you know, he's getting a lot of playing time. He's af actually averaging 21 minutes per game while he's been on the roster. That's got to be one of the highest marks for any 10-day contract ever, quite frankly. And it just speaks to the lack of depth at the wing at the moment. I'm kind of honestly, tonight specifically even, I'm a little surprised we haven't seen Elliot Williams after he made three triples uh, last night and was not not a world beater, but better, little bits better, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right. It's a very... Um, a lot of moving pieces type of process because, of course, another moving piece in this whole situation is Rodney Hood. And if the Jazz think that they can perhaps get by with only one of these two, that being Millsap or Williams, until Rodney Hood comes back, then you could save yourself some money and a roster slot by letting one of these guys go. And only like it, it seems like if I had to guess right now, I think that actually might be what the Jazz do, judging from the way I've seen uh, Coach Snyder distribute the, the minutes to these two guys. He seems to really be favoring Millsap over Williams. And if you think that you can just run... Uh, well, how many wings does that make it that you're effectively running? You're effectively running five, three plus the two <laughs> plus the Exum and, and Burke, and Exum okay. has the ability to play off, play at the two at times, which we've seen in this game and some other games as well. If you think you can sort of platoon yourself until after the All Star break when Rodney Hood gets back, and of course that's assuming that Hood is good to go after that break, and right, he, it's the knows is that he'll be evaluated, reevaluated uh -huh. at the All-Star break. So it's not that he'll be back then, it's just that they'll, you know, give it a, give it a chance then. I exactly. Guess. So there's the there's kind of part there's the rub if you will. Like right. that's there's no certainty here with Rodney Hood and if if his becomes a thing that stretches into late February or into March, then only keeping one of those guys could leave you very potentially thin. Not that you're not already kind of thin with those guys there anyway, who are probably playing it a little bit above their 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 skill level at the moment. Do you think both of those guys are at their above, playing above their skill level? Yeah. See, I I don't know if I agree. I mean, look, I'm looking up their stats right now, and again, not including tonight's three quarters of action thus far, but uh, 
uh, sorry, Elijah Millsap is putting out 5.9 points per game on 32% shooting, 42% from uh, the three-point line, so that's good. But he's made literally nothing or almost nothing inside. And then two rebounds, one assist per game, one steal per game. I mean, that's nice, but it still adds up to a total of just a a 4.4 PER. So, like, let's yeah. not, like, act like these guys are world beaters here. They're throwing up really pretty replacement level or sub-replacement level numbers. It, it's not like it, you would pick another D-League guy, one of, you know, one of the best players in the D-League, and have that much worse. I I would agree with that, and well, I, I think you're. I think were you disagreeing with me? I thought you were disagreeing at first, but I think you just agreed with me. I that, I thought you said that they are overachieving. No, 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 no. Oh. I said they're playing over their heads, like they're I I like they're, they're. And I'm saying that they're not playing that well. Yeah, no, and I I agree. No, I'm mean, sorry. You I'm, don't my, agree. My, you're saying that they're playing over their heads, so you're saying that they're playing well. No, no, I'm not. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm mis okay, I'm misspeaking. Okay, okay. I'm bad at talking English. Apparently, argument one. Andy wins the argument that I was agreeing with the whole time, just because I can't speak <laughs> like a normal human being. Yeah, I, I I think both of these guys are the better way to say it would be are in over their heads. Okay, would be the way not you. playing over their heads. They are in over their Understood. heads. Okay. Is what I think. Yeah, I mean, Milsa. We just saw a play just a couple of minutes ago where he ended up getting a corner three out of it later in the possession, but passed up a wide open corner three with like 14 seconds left on the shot clock you need your shooting guards whether they're off the bench or whether they're starting you need your shooting guards to be able to make wide open corner threes in today's nba that's just there that, really is nothing else to it that being said like none of the jazz shooting guards no oh, i know um, alec burks had problems with that joe ingles had problems with that you it's know true. it's it's what it seems like that's been the jazz's biggest problem at times mm -hmm. is not taking the open shots i mean coach schneider is as threatened to bench dante exum for just not taking, for not those, taking shots. those shots. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've seen that time and time again, not just with these D-League pickups. I think, in the end, because Elijah Millsap is such an important player for the team right now, they, they have to keep him. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's a, a virtual lock. It'd and, be hard to see him going. And anywhere. then I think that they let Elliot Williams go, and it'll be interesting to see if they sign another player to a 10-day or if they leave that spot open for the trade deadline. That's only three weeks away, and you know if you need to have that spot open in order to complete a trade, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, once again, we're talking about a team where the final win-loss record at the end of the year is perhaps a secondary concern to the development of the core players and to everything like that. And when you keep that in mind, the one thing I think that we can say for sure is that in no way will the Jazz sacrifice any relevant piece for the future to right. to fill their lack of wing depth this year because it's just not that important. Like, it sure it'd be better if they had better players there, but you're not going to sacrifice anything that's going to matter next year or further to be, to get one or two more wins this year that are really going to mean nothing. Yeah, and in particular, you may not sign a guy this year, even though it'll hurt the team this year because if you were not able to swing a trade because of the long term. Uh, a long-term beneficial trade because you didn't have the roster spots. That'd be kind of a bummer. Now that being said, the Jazz could waive, you know, whoever they sign, but they would then have to pay the the cap amount for the rest of the season, probably an NBA minimum cap amount. That's not a ton of money, but it is enough that it could make a difference in a trade being possible or not underneath. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I think that based on what we're saying, what's interesting to me is that, and again, this is based just solely on my eye test, which we proved before with Amar is faulty at times on the on the transition <laughs> stuff, apparently, um, that in very limited minutes, I've actually thought Elliot Williams was 
a reasonable basketball player. I, I like his stroke a lot more than Millsap's, and I don't think that he's that much worse of a defender or a rebounder than Millsap. And again, that's based on a massively small sample yeah. size that I can't really make final judgments off of. But I, I did, I have just found it interesting over the last couple of weeks that he hasn't found just a few more minutes here and there to try and showcase himself. Of course, Quinn Snyder sees way more than I do. He sees him in practice every day, right. so I'm sure he's got very good reasons for and it. And I, I think I see Elijah Millsap as being significantly better on defense than Elliot Williams. At he this must point. be. Elliot Williams yeah. is, is pretty small, um, and, and I think that hurts. And, and I think, ultimately, they're willing to take the, the offensive, the, basically the shooting hit. And honestly, Millsap has been shooting well from the outside, so mm-hmm. I guess that's not really the problem. It's that he, A, fouls too much, and then B, is unable to drive or make plays like you'd hope a guard could. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, this is the type of stuff that you sometimes have happening when you're a team like the Jazz, when you, you know, and especially when you un- undergo two unfortunate injuries at the same position in within right. weeks of it, one, <laughs> one really season unlucky. ending. And yeah, and, it, and it's, you know, almost in a, in a sense, it's kind of good that this happened this year. And not next year or the year after when you're making a really concerted playoff push, like yeah, a, a specifically, because that's when it'd be really damaging. Now it just helps the draft pick. It's and it sort of does. It's uh, silver linings everywhere, as we're prone to do on this show. We love our silver linings, and that's I, I think that's one of them is that hopefully you're getting this kind of stuff out of the way when it's less relevant than it would be in a couple of years. I want to point out two excellent articles on SaltCityHoops.com this week, both done by Dakota Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of our D League expert, and so he did. Look, because the Jazz could get some roster churning in these spots, looking at six wings that the Jazz could call up, um, although one of them was actually already called up by the Boston Celtics, and one chose today to go to the Adriatic League. Um, Such so a weird he's... decision. Not even, <laughs> not even a good team in the Adriatic League. It's like one of the bottom feeders in the Adriatic huh. League, I'm told. I'm guessing he was got paid. Must right? have. Yep. Because, honestly, those guys in the D-League are making 20 to 30K, right? Yep. So if, if you get the chance to all of a sudden make 10 times that in the Adriatic League, you you probably take it. Yeah, I guess you do. And that wow, the the th- that was Brady Heslip, right? Yeah. The the thing that I just thought was weird about it is he was one of those guys that was on the radar for a couple NBA teams. Yeah. To come up and get a ten day or to get a, a essentially a live tryout for what he could do on an NBA floor. I just it, and not that that means he can't do that now, or maybe it does depending on what his contract is like. It does because they can't now buy him out during the season. Oh. He'll be there for the whole season. Well, yeah. See, I just think if you're if you're some guy who has who really isn't on an NBA radar and you have no chance of that happening, I can totally understand that move because you want to get paid but if you're it, i mean i've I heard guys people specifically reference him as a yeah. guy that might get called up to more than one different nba team this year so yeah he, i don't know that's silly move i mean he shot really well with the super goofy reno um d league yeah but I, i'm just i agree with you but that being said like even if he is called up for two ten days it's probably less than he'd make in the adriatic league so like even best case if you're just looking at it from a money perspective i think this move make, might make some sense. cash rules everything around me <laughs> dollar dollar bills y'all can we just get you rapping for us on the outro of this segment? No. Okay. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's the only line I even know from that song anyway. <laughs> I, I, I know that line, and I know the title of the song. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. But in our next segment, we're going to have Salt City Hoops writer Dan Clayton join us talking about the state of the jazz in the league. Uh, go ahead and join us on the other side of that. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the Salt City Hoops show. We've got a close jazz game going on right now. It's 85-84 Milwaukee Bucks with the lead. And uh, keep the lead after missing a shot. Sorry, we're trying to watch the game and do the radio at the same time. It's a lot of fun, but 
I don't envy David Locke. We do have we do have the challenges of you know staying focused here on the field. You gotta you gotta stay focused for forty eight minutes if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, we've got Dan Clayton on the other line, and uh, Dan is an awesome writer and one of another one of our Salt City Hoops uh, featured experts, if you will. Dan, are you there? Yeah. Hey guys, how you doing? By the way, you don't you don't envy David Locke. What about a guy who has to do it in his second language? Right? <laughs> okay, you're right. You know what? You're right. I don't envy you or Nicole Hernandez or whoever. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Dan Clayton. Well, by I don't the way, have to was... do anything anymore but watch him. So yeah. you know, I'm having fun. Dan, by the way, if you don't know, was a uh, former Spanish language radio voice of the Utah Jazz, or I guess play by or color commentator. Is that right, Dan? Or you switched off? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You can. <laughs> Whatever. You did I was everything. a radio guy in okay. Spanish for the Utah Jazz, and now I'm just a guy uh, in whatever language. You're not just a guy. You're a Salt City Hoops featured expert. We've been over this. Okay. Anyway, sure, uh, I'll take it. I, I wanted to get your opinion on a bunch of stuff. First of all, you wrote an awesome Rudy Gobert article this week, and then you also looked at him, I believe, either last week or two weeks ago. Uh, first of all, you wrote and did a video compilation of his assists this year which I think is an underrated part of Rudy Gobert's game. He's, he's had 42 assists thus far this year uh, and has shown kind of a nimble passing element that I don't know that I knew that he had. I mean, what have you seen from Rudy Gobert as far as passing the ball goes this year? Well, you know, it's interesting because for the first 20 games or so, 25 games, um, he was getting a lot of assists, but it was basically all the same thing. It was that play that the Jazz have all their big men do a lot when a, you know, when a particular play... Um, you know, when the first option isn't there or whatever, one option is to look back to the weak side guard who comes up for a little handoff, and then you screen him at the same time, and they take the jumper. And that accounted for a bunch of Rudy's assists. Well, right about that same time in mid-December when he started playing a bunch more, um, you know, probably corresponding with the Favors injury, but also just, you know, as Favors started to see more minutes and get more comfortable on the floor, all of a sudden we were seeing a mixed bag. We were seeing some kickouts. Even some drive and kick stuff, which coming from a seven foot one, seven foot two guy is pretty amazing. And we were seeing some really nice interior pocket passing and wraparound passes. So I, I think that's the exciting thing to me because you know it's not that if if you only if your coach only asks you to make one kind of pass, that's not that difficult to do. Although I should be careful there because he also has twice as many passes as Enes Cantor, who's played more minutes than him on the season. <laughs> uh, but it, but it's the fact that we're starting to see. Um, a little bit of vision displayed by Rudy, and he's not just doing one thing and, and making one play, but he's really starting to learn the offense. Have you come up with a solid nickname for that? I mean, I know you suggested two of them in your article. Have you come up with the answer? Is it is it the Notre Dame or the Giving Tree? I know my vote. I, I like Notre Dame yep. uh, only because it's a little der- it's a little derivative of uh, Jody Genesee's Stifle Tower. It's like we're you know we're keeping it on the. Uh, on the Parisian sightseeing theme, and uh, even though he's not from Paris, uh, but you know whatever, I I think it still evokes the uh, or invokes the um, image of wandering around France with your uh, camera around your neck and your socks and sandals, which is kind of what I think Jody was going for. Are you trying to tell me there's parts of France that aren't Paris? <laughs> yeah. I know it's weird. Um, I I don't know that they really teach a lot of that in American schools, but kind of fun. It's my understanding that Argentina's in Europe as well. Um, <laughs> I, right. I I'm I'm partial to the Giving Tree, by the way. Um, I I'm just pro Shell Silverstein in every in every possible situation, and I guess this is one of them. Okay. All right. Um, 
Well, or the way uh, Andy Bailey put it the other day was uh, basically the Notre Dame is the act. So, it, so he tweeted out the other day, "Hey, look, it's another Notre Dame from the Giving Tree." So okay. you know we. We can make it work for everybody. Be diplomatic about it. And as far as Gobert's nickname himself, anything but the Stifle Tower to, just personally bugs me. It's got to be the Stifle Tower. I know the credit's got to go to Jody on that one, but that like, st- it's perfect. There's there <laughs> couldn't be any either that or their Gobert report. That for me, right. really, for, as his as his personal overall nickname. I love that we've spent this long on this. By the way, <laughs> um, <laughs> here's my question for you, Dan. Do you? Do you think that there is more room for his improvement in this area? And yes or no, and if and and kind of explain your answer. T- uh, tell me your thoughts about that, Dan. Oh sure, I, I think I, I think what the you know December seventeenth through now video tells us compared to the you know the first twenty or so assists of his season is that you know he's a guy who you can who you can sit down with and say, okay, you seem to get you know, how this particular play works. Now we're going to try the next thing. You know, now we're going to advance the repertoire along. He's obviously a hungry guy. Everything we hear from, uh, you know, from from people that spend time around the Jazz is that he wants to get better. He's coachable. Um, you, you know, I, I think, I think yeah, for sure. I, I think they're – I think what we're seeing around the basket is – you know, there's probably not that much more you want a guy who's seven one doing. Like at a certain point, you want him to focus as well on on adding that muscle mass so that he can just finish things that close in. Um, but but yeah, I think that there's a whole um, you know there's a whole development process with his with his passing that I think will will come with time. I think he's already kind of shattering the um, you know the best you can hope for him on offense is played him on the back line like like Tyson Chandler. I, I think he's I think he's showing us that he might have a little bit more um, to him mentally than just you know I'll stand back here and if the defense pressures you you can just lob it to me. Absolutely, and I, you, you mentioned the defense, which I'm going to transition to briefly here. I don't know if you were listening to it, and surely many of our listeners were last night on the broadcast. Matt Harpering picked Mr. Gasol, or excuse me, Mr. Gobert, as his defensive player of the year, not for the Jazz, but for the league, which to me was a pretty funny pick just because, I mean, it's obviously a homer pick. Rudy's playing like 21 and a half minutes per game, which is just like, it's very, very hard, to, and he's playing for a team that's still in the bottom 10 in defensive efficiency in the league, and so on and so forth, all those caveats. Here's my question, though, is... How actually far away is he from the point where he's going to be in that conversation yearly? Like, are we going to start, and or what would he have to do this year to enter the fringes of that? He can never win, but to enter the fringes of that conversation <laughs> this year. Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing with any of those awards is uh, if you look historically at who wins the, the postseason awards in the NBA, um, and I've actually done this before for Salt City Hoops, I think it was for Salt City Hoops. Um, pretty much the only award you can win and not be on an, a playoff team is Rookie of the Year. Everything else is kind of this prerequisite. But, like, you know, you were most improved, but your team didn't go anywhere. Okay, that's cool because there are eight other guys we could give most improved to. So I think that's the biggest thing is he'll start to be a contender for that type of attention um, and that type of hardware once the Jazz are – you know, legitimate again once the Jazz are relevant in the in the playoff discussion. 
we've got Dan. But, but as far as like, what does he have to do? Uh, you know, to solidify that impact, I, I don't think that much. I think he's already um, gotten as much buzz in the last 30 days as just about any NBA player. I mean, it's it's ridiculous how much he's getting talked about. Um, you know, not just by the Utah media, but by national people too. Yeah, sorry to cut you off there, Dan. I just wanted to let our listeners know you're listening to Dan Clayton of Salt City Hoops on with us. I I'm curious because you're right that he has had this sort of. Um, I guess, national notoriety, and it's, it's been really impressive. I wanted to get your thoughts on the move, kind of the surprising move to both of us, that the Jazz chose to start Dante Exum uh, in tonight's game over a healthy Trey Burke. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, like right off the bat, it was, I was surprised. It was a little weird um, because it's not like Trey has been playing poorly late. I mean, you know, the last two games he's had some clunkers, but so pretty much the entire roster. Um, <laughs> You know, before that, he had six straight games with 15 points or more. So when he made the comment today um, that uh, that he understands that the coach has to hold him accountable, I was thinking, you know, hold hold you accountable for what? Uh, you know, he has had a couple of rough games, but it's not like Dante Exum has played better. And, and I think I'm pretty well established as a as a Dante Exum fan club president, or you know, at least like treasurer or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, we haven't had the yearly officer elections yet, but I mean, like, I'm I'm pretty much on the record as being a Dante guy, um, but but he has played, he has been in a really big funk, um, you know, and and maybe and maybe the what this tells us, and and you know what we're seeing as a result tonight with the Jazz in Milwaukee is that Quinn Snyder's an evil genius, and this was all part of his master plan because maybe all Dante needed to shake out of that funk was a little bit of confidence from his coach to say, hey, go out there and get me 15 points and a couple of dimes. I was going to ask, is this the, the Exum game? Are we are, are we watching it? Or Really good question, yeah. Um, so for those who don't know, I've been talking for a long time about when we're going to have that Exum game where we start to see flashes and we go, oh, Exum has arrived. I guess for me, I pictured the Exum game a little differently. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm impressed by his 15 points on five three-pointers at this stage of the game. I, I guess for me, what I thought we would see, the game that I thought would make us all fangirl out and go crazy over the Australian rookie, was the game where he started to really use his tools a little bit more and, and get to the basket and turn on the burners and, and lose guys in the dust. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled uh, you know, to see him have what I think is at this point a career night. Um, and between the three of us, he's probably my front runner for that next game ball at this point. If the Ooh, Jazz oh, man. It is, point lead. it is indeed, by the way, his career high with 15 points. All of them on three-point shots tonight. He's made five, if you can do the math. Um, but I agree with you, Dan, that I'd like to see a little bit more variety in his offensive game in order to give him that XM game title. Um I'm yeah. curious about your thoughts on the end of the roster. I mean, so the Jazz have to make this decision on both uh, Elijah Millsap and Elliot Williams this week. Wanted to know your thoughts on whether or not you think the Jazz should keep those guys, whether they will keep those guys, whether the flexibility is worth it as the Jazz take an eight-point lead in Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee timeout. Um, yeah, good question. I, I think if, if Rodney Hood and, and Alec Burks were healthy, um, you know, this would be a wow. That was a great shot by Hayward. Sorry, I'm <laughs> apparently a few seconds behind you. Yeah, <laughs> um, but he's he's taken over. Um, 
so at any rate, uh, you know, the health issues make this, in my mind, a little bit of a no-brainer. Um, I think otherwise you'd have some serious debate because the Jazz have wanted to use those last spots as a chance to kick the tires on some guys and, and you know, cycle guys in and out so that they can find those diamonds in the rough and, and those, um, you know, do the Popovich thing and, and pull some studs off the scrap the NBA scrap heap. Um, but I think just with the health situation, I'm not sure that they um, can really afford, frankly, to, you know, I mean, he's like Millsap, I almost called him Paul Millsap. Elijah Millsap is playing a lot of minutes for this team right now. So, you know, just from a continuity perspective, if you tell him thanks for your 20 days of service and you bring someone else in and you expect them to play 15 or 20 minutes a night, that's definitely going to have an impact on the team. Probably less so with Elliot Williams. But in my mind, I'd probably, um, I'd probably keep both of them. Now, maybe that's why I'm not Dennis Lindsay, and, and Dennis Lindsay is Dennis Lindsay. Um, but I, but I just think health-wise, you know, these these guys have had nice moments. Elliot Williams with double figures last night, uh, and then Elijah obviously with uh, a lot of great defensive play. Um, that some of it shows up in the stat sheet, and some of it doesn't. What happened to Ian Clark, by the way? <laughs> like, is that a thing anymore? Does he? I, because that's the, yeah. the part that I've been wondering about. Like, we're looking at all these these stop gaps essentially, and there's been this guy who's been on the roster the entire year. Yeah, I, I think maybe a lot of it is that he's too small to play three. Like, he he really can't play any three. I don't, no. at least not viably for long. Play, for I don't think periods. he can play two. Quite he can frankly. barely play two. I was gonna say like he's he's getting abused by certain twos as well, and he just hasn't shot the ball well enough to make up for any of that on the other end. It's. It's a little unfortunate for him that he, his play has been at a level where th- clearly this is a concern for the Jazz wing depth, and they've gotten enormously unlucky with their top two guys at a, sing- a single position going down for much of the year. And instead of going to the guy who's been on their roster all year long, they're looking for D-leaguers and 10-day contracts and things like that instead of him. Is this probably the last we're seeing of, of Ian Clark then, do you think? You know, I, I've always I, I'm, I've gotten some heat for this, actually, because I know that Ian Clark is – is a guy that a lot of fans like. And I like him, too. I have no issues with Ian Clark, the person or, or even the player. I just think that as the NBA game is concerned, he's a little bit without identity. Um, you know, his calling card was always that he could make shots, and he's not doing that in the NBA. So he's basically either a shot maker who doesn't make shots or he's a facilitator who doesn't really facilitate. And and to be honest, like that's that's fine if that's what he is and he's just your 13th man. But that makes me wonder a little bit why the Jazz – guaranteed his contract if you know if like it's it's january and they're relying this heavily on the elijah Millsaps and elliot williams of the world it was only you know a couple months ago really that they said sure you know take 800 grand on us because that could be now the the spot that was being used for flexibility and for trying guys out but instead we committed that that money and that roster spot to a guy who like i say i'm just not sure how he fits in the NBA. Yeah. Unless he, starts, unless he starts knocking down jumpers. We'll see. I mean, wasn't it the 31st, though? That, the, the sorry, 31st. July 31st that they had to make that decision. No, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. I'm, I'm oversimplifying when I say a couple months. I, I think it was later. I think it was sometime in August for some reason with his guarantee date. It was later than, uh, it was later than most of the free agent, you know, hubbub. Right. So you're right, and I, I, like, I should be, I should be fair to Ian, but it just obviously he's not a big part of the plan. And I kind of think the same thing, honestly, about, like, you know, poor Jeremy Evans, who a mm-hmm. year ago was a rotation player, you know, finally had grabbed a rotation spot. 
And and now, you know, he sees guys going in and out with injury and Derek Favors misses a game due to personal issues. And, you know, Jeremy's probably thinking, okay, tonight I'm going to get my shot. And, and Quinn instead spreads the minutes three guys, you know, across three guys, which is, don't get me wrong, probably the right thing to do. But those are just a couple of guys when you think about Jeremy and, and Ian who are probably, you know, wondering if their coach remembers <laughs> that they're there. Um, but again, it's it's all for reasons that I can understand from a basketball perspective. Yeah, Andy and I were actually just talking about that with each other on one of the breaks here about how the the, the Jazz rotation has only been eight men tonight, and part of a big part of that is the fact that they're only going with three bigs rather than four, and with one big out in Derek Favors, they've just kind of chosen to distribute those minutes more evenly among the rest of them rather than to go to somebody like Jeremy Evans, and he's uh, he's un I think he's unrestricted after this season, right? Because he's been in the league. Seven years now? Yeah. Am I mistaken? Yeah, he's... yeah unre- he's unrestricted, and uh, yeah, you're right. Three bigs, three wings, two guard, two point guards. Um, so, and and by the way, that's that's an okay way to play. I mean, that's that's a smart way to do it. Um, although, you know, when when you're in a season that that maybe getting a look at some guys would would make a good difference too. We might have a no. Never mind. I thought we had an Uch Luke moment. So yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I think you're right. I think uh, I think eight deep might be what, might be what we see until this team is whole again. Yeah, I know that that's fair. So, want to let you get to watching the end of this Jazz game. Jazz are currently up 101-96 with about a minute 40 left to go. We'll let you go and go around the NBA just for a second before the game ends. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks guys. Have a good one. You too, Dan. Again, guys, that is Dan Clayton, featured writer on Salt City Hoops. He has a couple of pieces out this week. Both are about Rudy Gobert, and one is essentially just a uh, uh, video compilation, which, by the way, is really excellent. Dan went to the trouble of parsing out or the types of assists specifically, rather than just just putting the assists in order on, in the video, which I was a really yeah. big fan of because that's the there's a huge diff. That it's more important to see the types of assists than it is to see them in chronological order. It's almost draft expressian. Very, yeah, very draft expressian. I think you could say. Yeah. Um, Milwaukee's going on a little bit of a run here. Their Jazz are now only up one hundred one ninety nine after having a nine point lead just I believe a minute and a half earlier. So it's actually interesting. This game is shaping up to be a close one. I want to get to, while we're in a commercial break, just kind of go around the NBA, start the Around the NBA segment a little bit, talking about the Golden State Warriors and, and the Houston Rockets last night. I mean, these are two of the, the premier teams in the NBA right now, and it's interesting just the war of words between these two teams. James Harden before the game saying they ain't even that good, despite uh, Golden State having beaten them three times before last night and then putting a solid pounding on them in, in last night's game. Um, and then Draymond Green, after getting the blowout win, said, quote-unquote, I'm sure they were a little frustrated because if we're not that good, sorry, because we're not that good, and then furthermore, if we're not that good, they're in trouble. Draymond Green said furthermore? No, I think. <laughs> okay, I thought you might have inserted that one before. <laughs> um, I found this stuff particularly interesting. I was watching that game last night, and, um, and first of all, Golden State is ridiculously good. Second of all, and I've noticed this a bit, I was, I was tweeting a little bit about this when they played the Jazz uh, last week, and they're going to play again next week, that th- this Golden State team is disrespectful. Like these, and I'm, I don't mean that huh. badly. I don't mean that badly at all. I mean that. I mean that actually, kind of in a good way, because we know that you kind of you need a little bit of that edge to really get over the hump in the sometimes in the league, and and so on and so forth. A lot of that's hyperbole, but I do I do believe in it to a to a degree. Like they want to blow teams out. They don't want to beat teams. They want to kill you. They want to laugh at you on their bench. They like. 
And I think we saw last night a team that gave it a little bit back to them, and then they just destroyed them, and the quotes they had for them afterwards were kind of just like, hi, guys, we're waving at you, like, we see your quote. Now, that's not to say those are stupid quotes from Harden in the first place. You should never say something like that about a team that's beaten you three times and has lost one time at home all season, and you're about to play them at home. Right. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's a really stupid thing to do. It's like pe- it's like when people try and talk to LeBron or when people tried to talk to Michael back in the day when they tried to talk smack to him. Like, what are you thinking trying to do something? Something like that. That's so dumb. But and it, it does. It fires them up. Exactly. And they, you know, they responded in kind. They beat the crap out of those guys last night. And I, you know what, I, I think that as long as they keep playing the way they are, they've as long as they are able to remember that it's still January and that we've seen plenty of title winners crowned in January that were nowhere to be found in uh, in April. That they need to that they're backing up the talk at the moment, and you got to give them credit for it. And despite the fact that I think it's a little early in Steph's career for him to be thinking that he's a god while he's walking around, the, that level of confidence is certainly a, a real important thing that definitely matters. You know? Yeah. No, I I completely agree, and I I think we see that over and over in the NBA, although I, I think sometimes we see the, the other side of it, the overconfidence that means when you know you, you don't have the game to back it up, sometimes you take some silly shots that maybe you shouldn't take. Uh, <laughs> we're all tied. We're just watching this jazz game. There, it's hard to have the left. show while we're, while there's a jazz game going on. Dan, uh, by the way, on Twitter now says, "Hey, wait, did I miss the segment where we talk about OJ Mayo's hair? Can I call back in?" <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Dan, it does appear that you missed that segment. I I apologize there, as the Jazz cling to a two point lead here, which hopefully they'll maintain. That's unfortunate. Let's go ahead and take a break right now. We're gonna come back on the other side and do around the NBA. We've got a lot to talk about. This has been an mm-hmm. exciting week in the league. So let's go ahead and make that segment a little bit longer. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back into the show. So while we were away, we watched the end of that Jazz game. Jazz actually pulled it out 101-99 against Milwaukee Bucks. Um, it, Milwaukee added two chances to tie the game at the end. First, a missed jump shot from about 21 feet, and then a missed offensive rebound opportunity from Zaza Pachulia. Jazz get the rebound and the win. It's a big win for the Jazz, given that they've lost their last few in big fashion to be able to put up, first of all, more than 100 points, and then second of all, you know, to finally close it out and get a win. More than 100 against, a, a, as we said earlier, a very good defense, too, and a, a long defense that I think they the Jazz stretched them out, I think, a little more than Milwaukee's used to being stretched out. They made how many threes did they end up making for the game? Ended total? up making 14 threes on 31 attempts, which is pretty impressive. That's a good percentage. Um, and again, Dante Exum, your three-point leader, with taking five, um, or sorry, making five out of his 10 three-point attempts. In the end, Gordon Hayward just took over the game 11 points in the first half, 24 overall, 13 in that uh, fourth quarter that that's a big thing and and you know Gordon Hayward's done that a lot for the Jazz this and Ennis Cantor had another monster game stat wise 23 and 16 wow. which so what does that give him of now over the last 24 hours that gives him four, <laughs> 47 and 33 or something yeah. like that if Con- I'm doing my math consecutive right consecutive 2015 games is impressive no matter who you're playing or how you're playing and, yep. and honestly though they're two good opponents that the Jazz have played recently those are big for Enes Kanter, who had been on a slump since Rudy Gobert's kind of emergence. He, he's played well over the last two games. Rudy Gobert, I thought, also played well. Uh, only one block tonight, but was big in the middle for the Jazz. Uh, oh, hey, look. This is the Jazz's first win without Derek Favors in 12 games. That Yeah, they, that's true. They were winless last season as well as in the couple of games he's been gone this season. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a big deal for the Jazz. 
All right, so let's go around the NBA a little bit because, you know, there's so much going on in the league, and this isn't just a jazz-focused show. We want to talk about the whole league and kind of ca- catch everyone up on it. As always, we start off with the Los Angeles Lakers and their their hijinks, if you will. Cue the music. Thank you. There we go. The Lakers are 0-4 in the last week, have lost six straight. They have the fourth worst record in the league. Which is now their one game now further away from everybody else with the Jazz winning this game tonight. That's a good point. So, you know, maybe they're more likely to keep their pick. Remember, they lose it to the Phoenix Suns if they finish in the bottom, or if they finish above the top five, or mm-hmm. above the bottom five. So finishing with the fourth, excuse me, the fourth worst record will actually be a really huge deal for them because if you if they finish with exactly the fifth worst record, there's a lot of ways that they could lose that pick even with finishing there because there are the lottery and you could drop out of that right. pick from there. So yeah, this it's pretty important for them that they continue to lose games and they're doing a very good job of it lately. Well unfortunately, done, Lakers. Well done. But unfortunately, one part of that that is going to contribute, although you never know how this is actually going to affect them, is that it does look now that due to a torn rotator cuff, Kobe Bryant might miss the remainder of the season. There's no official word on that yet, but given his age and the recent surgeries that he's gone under and all of that put together, I think it's very hard to imagine that we see much more of him this year. Now, the Lakers have been insanely better without him on the floor <laughs> than they have been with him, yeah. so you have to consider that as part of the calculus it might, there. It might be a blessing in disguise. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it makes no sense whatsoever for Kobe to play with just with this injury, with this record. You yeah. know, it just doesn't. But, that being said, he's the competitor and really, you know, at this point, he seems like he's going for the points rather than for the wins. Maybe that's what he's trying to do. Yeah. Um, we'll go ahead and move on because there are some other excellent stories. So, uncue the music. Thank I you. love the, I love my way, LOL Lakers, though. Yes, thank you for to our producer, John, by the way, for the excellent Yakety Sax interludes. We really appreciate that's it. That's John LaFollette, guys. You should go give him a follow on Twitter, which it's is, it's, uh, what's your what's your Twitter, John? At ESPN700John, J-O-N. ES- yeah, just J-O-N. There's no H in there. John doesn't waste any time with letters <laughs> or anything goofy like I'm that. I'm all about efficiency. Yep. Teams that aren't all about the efficiency, <laughs> the New York Knicks. My favorite New York Knicks fact, so first of all, they're the worst team in the league, which is insane given that they, the talent that they have. And that Philadelphia is also in the league. <laughs> that Philadelphia exists. You're in the right. same division. Yeah, so like, this is very sad that the, that the Knicks are where they are. But they accomplished an impressive feat this week in which they went. They had a record of 6-36 and 36 at one point. Now you may be wondering why that's important. Well, they started the, le- the game, sorry, the season with a 1-1 one and one record. Then they went to a two and four. They went to a three and nine. They went to four and sixteen. They went to five and twenty-five, and then ended up at six and thirty-six. Math Finally, majors, yeah, like Andy, have already caught the trend here. Yes, the the numerologist in me is like dying over here about how bad the Knicks have been. So really, they just have to lose, or sorry, win only one of their next fourteen games, and we'll see it again. Yeah, that and kind of sucks. <laughs> and then it gets significantly longer each time, right? Have you done right. the math for what it would end up? With? Is it possible well, for them to maintain it for the yeah, full season? Yeah, so you get seven and forty-nine and eight and sixty-four, and then you know they're not going to get nine and eighty-one. There aren't that many NBA games. You can't quite but do that, but two more check marks to hit, and then the Knicks will have a all-time record in numerological coolness. Well, congratulations, guys. I am such a nerd. Anyway, let's move on. Um, Sean Marion has announced that he's retiring at the end of the year. He's been he's played a lot of minutes for the Cavs, but has clearly dropped off a level this season. A big level, unfortunately. I, as the the closet LeBron homer that I am, I watch all of the Cavaliers games, and yeah, he's been 
a detriment on honestly kind of on both ends. He's still passable <laughs> defensively and it's good that he can he's a good guy who can shift between positions which they do need defensively because they're so unbelievably weak there uh, defensively, but I mean, the, he's like almost kind of what the Jazz have got with some of the two guards that we were talking about where you'll find him wide open in the corner and it's not a shot he's taking because it's just not one that he can make anymore. With the, I wonder how he ever made that shot in his life with the goofy shooting motion he's got. No, but he's a really interesting case. Of course, the first thing that came up with him, like it will with Manu Ginobili, if and when Manu retires, although Manu is far less of a close case in my opinion, is, the, is his Hall of Fame case. And he's one of the... One of the historically unique players in terms of that question. And this is, this actually, by the way, ties back to my all-star thing that I was talking about earlier. Because Sean Marion has six all-star appearances, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know what, I might be confusing this with all NBA teams, but I think it's all-star, and I think it's no player in history with six or more all-star game appearances has ever missed the Hall of Fame. Would you, would you vote him in? I would. And. I would too. And yeah. I, I, I mean, I get that. There are people who are like, Sean Marion's not a Hall of Famer, blah, blah, blah. Only Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant are Hall of Famers. <laughs> but, like, those people are old and decrepit. Yeah. Like, I, I just think that, like, we should include one of the best players on one of the best teams of the 2000s that really made a huge impact um, on and on title team with the Mavericks. And, you know, I, he's a fringe case, I'll admit it. And I, I think that the voters will ultimately decide that he wasn't good enough. Which is too um, bad. But... You know, I, I like players like Sean Marion in, in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Let's keep moving on. Um, kind of in that same sphere, I guess. We've got two All-Star um, announcements that happened yesterday and today. Uh, first of all, the dunk contest. We've got three of the four participants confirmed from Adrian Wojnarowski. Wait, it's only Yahoo. four total for the, um, for the whole league? I thought I it was six. It, I always forget because they changed the format. It's either four or six. Yeah, I think it's six, um, three from each conference. Okay, yeah, that's what it was last year. We'll see if the format changes because oh, it God, was four it. in the Jeremy Evans year. Um, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Jazz's opponent tonight um, with the Milwaukee Bucks. Big, the, the Greek freak, he's 6'11 and has ridiculously long arms. I haven't seen a lot of like incredible dunks from him, but I've seen some dunks where I can't believe his takeoff point on yeah. his dunks. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, he had 13 points tonight, six rebounds, three assists, five steals against the Jazz. Um, other dunk contest names, Victor Oladipo from the Orlando Magic, Mason Plumley, and then also rumored Zach Levine. They're looking for his signature, I guess, to participate, though that has not yet been confirmed. What do you think of the lineup? If if Levine does compete, and I expect him to, this is his his competition to lose. Uh, okay. He's the he's the easily the most explosive dunker of the of the rookie class this year, and one of the more already in the NBA. The guy can really dunk the basketball. Plumley's my dark horse. Plumley can dunk, and he dunks with some ferocity too. That's the thing about him. And I've I've always been partial to those kind of dunks. Like I loved Amari Stoudemire as a dunker, just because of how hard he threw the ball down. Or I guess he still does that, but just not yeah, no, not I- in a good way anymore. <laughs> um, and I'm interested to see who the other guys are in the West. I've heard Rudy Gobert be named, be mentioned by a lot of people as somebody they'd like to see. As which a dunk con- contest I know it, it confused me too, but it's it's I think it's the same kind of thing as Antetokounmpo, where you're just you're just wanting to see the general freakiness of that person yeah. because. You know, it's not like Rudy can put the ball through his legs and dunk it or something like that. Like he maybe can, he can, maybe he can. If he can, he should be in the dunk contest. <laughs> like they better get him in there. Um, yeah. And the big thing for me, though, you mentioned it earlier, the format. 
it needs to not be what it was last year because the format last year was horrible and like I stopped watching before it was even over because the format last year was basically there was no one winner. Yeah. It was teams. It was like the two the Eastern Conference versus the Western Conference and they had to combine for dunks at one point and there there were no three ridiculous former player judges sitting over on the side holding up a ten every time a guy made Everything a dunk. Everything was disappointing. It was just it really I didn't like it at all and I, I think that sediment is pretty much echoed by everybody. So I would assume <laughs> that the NBA heard it and that they're gonna go back yeah. to more of a traditional like each guy is an individual and let's just pick one of them who wins like i'd yeah. like to see if it's six guys i'd like to see all six get what two attempts each to f- to start and then you narrow it down to the two finalists and you go from there like yeah no I, I think that's reasonable it'll be interesting to see i think Giannis has the dunking um or Giannis antetokounmpo has the the potential to be like a javel mcgee-esque dunk contest dunker mm-hmm. doing some incredible kind of things with multiple hoops or uh, heights that we haven't seen reached before. So we'll see if that works out. N- the other announcement that I met, alluded to earlier is that the rookie sophomore game is now, instead of being picked by TNT analysts, is now uh, the USA versus the world, which means players like Dante Axum, Rudy Gobert, um, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And, maybe and Joe Ingles. Heck, maybe Joe Ingles. You're right. He's a rookie. May get to play together in this game. Um against the USA's best rookies, I, I think that's a fun twist. I love it. I, I think that when I saw that news yesterday, I was among the many who, I think, universally allotting that move. It's really, really good. I, lo- I, I love that we're not involving Charles Barkley in picking the team anymore, which is just great for, in, from all perspectives. And just the way the climate is currently, if you were to try and have that this type of a format for the actual All-Star game itself, it would never work because the, the very top-end talent in the league is still very, very heavily American. So it, yeah. that, for that reason, it wouldn't work. But the younger crop we've got a lot more international players coming up in it and i think it's i think it's gonna be a good game and i actually think that this format perhaps is slightly more conducive to an actual competitive basketball game which would because in our minds when we think about the funness of these games a lot of it is thinking about these actual guys teaming up on an actual trying hard nba roster like thinking about starting a lineup with Wiggins, Gobert, and Antetokounmpo as your as three of the guys on your roster, and like thinking about playing against that in an actual NBA game and trying to score on that, for example, which that's would true. be that's, really really that's hard. Thought. Yeah, because Wiggins, by the way, is Canadian. For those who don't remember, so right. he counts as international, and he's going to be a for sure starter on that team as long as he doesn't pull out or anything like that. I think it's going to be really fun. I never watched the rookie sophomore game this year. I'm going to. Nice. Okay. Cool. By the way, just a reminder: Jazz won tonight, one hundred one ninety nine against the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, Jazz featured four international starters in their lineup tonight. Very so nice. Fun fact, and I believe uh, Bucks had three, so that's that's cool as well. Um, Kawhi Leonard's return. So the Spurs are now three and zero since he returned last week. Um, the Spurs are just so much better with him on the floor. Is he their best player? Yes or no? Oh yes. I don't think there's even. It's not even close. At this not point. even close. Kawhi Leonard by far best Spurs player. Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, Tim Duncan, all significantly worse than Kawhi Leonard. Uh, I hate the th- Maybe, I hate okay, the term I'll take worse. Out significantly, but. Well, and I just I hate the term worse because we're you know I I don't think that with a team like theirs that you're ranking them in 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 an order of quality, but I but in terms we're of importance. Radio hosts. No, I know. Well, but in order of importance, <laughs> let's rank them in order of importance okay. to that team. Okay. And in that con- in that construct, absolutely, it's not. Clear. Huh. And you can see it based on the their their on and off splits for when they've had them and when they have it. Did you you had those numbers right? Yeah. So they are plus thirteen with them on the floor per hundred possessions. And actually negative without him, negative point four. Seeing the Spurs um, negative in any construct is extremely strange, and that should tell you how important he is right there. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so they were they were three and zero since his return, seven and eight before that in that stretch. So 
again, these it's a big deal for the Spurs that he's healthy and he's back. We should see them start to make a move up the Western Conference standings. And this is why in January... Lots of things can still happen, and a couple weeks ago we were worried about the Spurs. I don't think people are as worried anymore now that we've seen him back for a few games. Got to let it go the full season. Two more quick points while we've got the time. Toronto's coming back down to earth. What's going on with them? I, I, I don't know. They've, 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 <laughs> they've reintegrated DeRozan really badly, I think, is, is part of what people are saying. And we're finally starting to see so, somebody like Zach Lowe has written about Toronto and written like their defensive scheme is really is actually contrary to what most teams, smart teams run in the NBA today. Maybe and they're getting scouted a little I bit. I think we're starting to, and it, it had worked for them because their talent is, is sort of unique and it's a little different from a lot of other teams. They're like, uh, offensively, they're really low in assist figures. Like their, their percentage of baskets assisted is one of the lowest in the league, for example example because they're relying a lot on their individual talent of guys like Kyle Lowry and a DeMar DeRozan now that he's back and I think maybe it's caught up to them yeah no I think that makes sense and then our final point Atlanta has won 14 in a row they're the league's hottest team how many all-stars do that does that team have do they do they get the full four I they won't but they I would think there would be an argument for it I hate being the guy arguing they should have this many because there's only 12 all-star spots in yeah them. but that's where it comes back to Pau Gasol's starting, and he shouldn't be. It should be Millsap starting, and Gasol shouldn't even be on the team. No offense, pal. And (laughs) if that was the case, and we weren't relying on the fans to do the voting, then maybe Atlanta would get the one more player that they deserve to have in there. Maybe Kyle Korver would get in, where I think it's very unlikely that he does currently. I think he has a better chance because coaches around the Eastern Conference have seen what he's done to their teams. And you know those are and his own coach is the one, and his own coach is the one co- coaching the team. That's true. Although I believe that he doesn't get to vote for. No, him. he doesn't. In fact, it's so, actually maybe that hurts his case. Actually, might, his yeah. own coach doesn't get to vote. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. We've got one more segment left on the Salt City Hoop Show. We're going to recap more of tonight's game. Look ahead to the Jazz's future schedule for the next week. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Hello, welcome back everyone to the Salt City Hoops show. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We're the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. We've got Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. You can follow him at Ben underscore Dowsett on Twitter. Um, just some rapid thoughts about tonight's game. First of all, Jazz 22 turnovers, which is just far too many, but... Despite that, the offense actually worked pretty well, getting them 101 points in the game. First time in a while, they've scored over 100. And with Gordon Hayward scoring 24, Ennis Cantor 23, uh, Dante Exum hitting his three-point shots, and Rudy Gobert even contributing with 14 points. It ends up being a nice little offensive night for the Jazz. Yeah, it was you know it was kind of a weird game, really back and forth. A lot of a couple of big lead changes and swings there in the second half. The Jazz weathered it though. You know, it kind of looked in that third quarter there like they were just getting ready to fold and have the game be over. And especially with as we mentioned earlier, the eight man rotation looked like maybe they were tiring out a little bit. And they they put together a nice little ending there. And I think highest credit, as you said earlier, to to Gordon Hayward for kind of taking things over and steering his team in the right direction down the stretch there. Yeah, there's no doubt. Definitely the highlight of the game was. Rudy Gobert's dunk in the first quarter crazy where he <laughs> took two steps and just reversed it in like I- I've never seen a center make that sort of play before yeah it's really really hard to do and it I mean it just speaks to the ridiculous length of his arms I'm surprised he didn't hit his head on the rim <laughs> as he was jumping up for it I'm glad he didn't I'm so glad he's just okay yeah probably I- I'm I-, I just continue to be impressed with this jazz team and sure they were at the same point as they were in the halfway mark last year but you know I think in terms of development we can see how much things have changed on the board and plus the draft pick's still gonna be good and there you go that's a good point 
Okay, so let's go ahead. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention about tonight's game. Um, the rebounding I thought was interesting. Ennis Cantor with 16 rebounds, Rita Gobert with 10 rebounds, Hayward with 6, Ingles from 4. They really made a team effort to, to get that offensive rebound, despite actually Milwaukee getting, uh, sorry, both offensive and defensive rebounds. Milwaukee got 15 offensive boards, but I, I just think it's interesting how much of a team effort that was tonight. What was the final count overall rebounds from each team? 43-40. For, yes. for the Jazz? Okay. Yeah, I mean, 15 offensive rebounds is too many to give up. Uh, I think that's one area where, for as good as he is getting r offensive rebounds, Rudy needs to work a little bit on his box outs defensively. Um, he, he at time we saw at the end, Zaza Pachulia nearly put it, nearly got a put back over him essentially on the offensive Although, rebound. Although Rudy Gobert was there too. I, I may have blamed Rudy for that play more than. Oh, I was saying Rudy. Oh, sorry, I'm, I thought I'm, you meant that. No, I'm saying Rudy. He's My he's fault. he's been a, a bull on the offensive glass himself, but he's there are times where he's when they, when it's uncontested and he has a chance to get up in the air. Of course, he's getting every one of those rebounds because he's the tallest. But when it's stuff where it's a, a big box out and some some grit and muscle down low, there are times where he's being out muscled a little bit. It's just something to work on, yeah. which he's worked on a number of things that he needed to work on already. So, quote of the night is from Dante Exum saying, "Quote." Quote, this is from Spence Jackets, by the way. We knew he, he referring to Brandon Knight, was going to miss the last shot, so we let him have it. <laughs> a little bit of shade. From <laughs> he was kidding, I'm sure, but a little bit of shade uh, thrown from the 19 Yeah, Brandon Knight has not been a terrific shooter over the course of his career. Yeah, no, he really has. I would have to check his clutch numbers over his career to see how they are. But I, I don't know how his clutch numbers are, but overall, they haven't been great. That being said, neither have... Dante yeah, it's a little bit of the pot so. calling the kettle black there to <laughs> to a certain point, but I mean, and I, I, I think what he's he's probably being a little bit cheeky there, and I think the actual yes. point that he's trying to get to is that they had a pretty good chance that he's that that Knight was going to be the one taking the shot, and that from a strategical standpoint, the Jazz kind of planned for that a little is maybe what he was trying to say before he decided to make a little joke. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair, and and he did get an open look, he just missed it. So yeah. Um, at, at least it wasn't a three, I guess, is, is the best way to put it, look at it. From I don't think they played great defense on that last night. No, they didn't, and, and or the box out at the end where you, you, you can't be letting a guy get that rebound. But you gotta you gotta put a muscle on him. But right. it worked out. So as our guest on the show earlier today, Amar just tweeted, "The Jazz are winning every time Andy Larson and Ben Dassett have me on the show, just saying we are one and zero." when we have Amar on the show. It's very true. I think we got to start doing that <laughs> pretty much every time the Jazz have a game one on the day we record. That seems reasonable, right? Yeah, which I think is only like once or twice more for the rest of the year, unfortunately. Yeah. But Let's go ahead and take a look at the Jazz's upcoming schedule for the next week. Uh, they've got four games, uh, sorry, three games before our next show, Saturday, Monday, and Wednesday. The first one is Saturday against the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, all these are home games, by the way. It's the Jazz's first little um, home extended trip in a little while. Um Brooklyn Nets are 18 and 24. They don't have Darren Williams. They're a train wreck. They're uh, obviously below expectations. Lionel Hollins hasn't been the coach upgrade that I thought that I think Brooklyn fans and and ownership thought. Did you hear the quote that he said the other day? No, what was it? That they, they somebody was talking to him about carving an identity for your team, and he said, "Yeah, we have an identity. We miss shots." <laughs> that was that was it, the basically the full quote. That's I, a very I, Ty Corbin quote. I it, feel well, like. it is, like, and that's just you. You know things are going great in your locker room when you're got your coach making that kind of a quote right there. I've always thought that like Ty Corbin and Lionel Hollins should be buds. Like they are the same kind of coach. <laughs> in terms of yeah. how they go about things. And I think one's been a little bit more successful than the other, but uh, I, I just think that they're both kind of old school. They're both all about effort, and they're not afraid to say it how how it is, I guess. Yeah. No, the Jazz should, uh, the jazz should win that game. 
they, they even could, though they're only fourteen and I mean the Jazz are fourteen and twenty eight or I guess fifteen and twenty eight now after the win tonight. Correct. This they isn't. have a worse record, but they play in the Western Conference first of all, as compared to to Brooklyn playing in the East. And uh, Brooklyn is just uh, they they really are a train wreck at this point. Before Darren even got hurt, he was coming off the bench. So for those right. scoring at home, that's an eighteen million dollar per year player coming off your bench. So that sh- again says a great deal about what's going on in your locker room. That's a great deal about what's going on with Darren Williams. Yeah, that too. That's great trade by the Jazz. I would just <laughs> I would just like to refresh that. That's really, really good trade. It's, uh, it's been incredible. Then they take on the Boston Celtics uh, Monday I, again. Another game that the Jazz should win, especially mm-hmm. with the tanking moves that the Celtics have made as oh, of yeah. late, trading Jeff Green and Rajon Rondo. They're in the the Celtics are in full on sell and tank mode at this point. They're going to be one of those. They're going to be there along with Philly in terms of teams that will be willing to maybe take on a contract or two at the trade deadline to help facilitate a uh, a bigger trade type of thing where they get themselves a pick out of it. They're absolutely going to be one of those teams yeah the uh the jazz are gonna have to uh, win that game and then the marquee matchup is wednesday january 28th against the clippers uh obviously the clippers are a good team but people have been writing interesting things about them that you know maybe they're not living up to expectations like there's something wrong and and uh, not sure what it is andrew han um from clippers blog wrote an article for espn.com uh basically saying that like this hasn't gone as well as people thought it would yeah, and I I think that I am in the camp of people saying that that's basically a case, very much a case of uh, GM Doc sabotaging Coach Doc <laughs> because, and this and this goes to a larger argument that that several smart people that I know have made in terms of that it's not conducive for one person to be both the coach and GM of a team because there's too many responsibilities for you to handle, and one or the other is inevitably going to get overlooked. These guys have done a terrible job for shoring up the rest of their roster. They basically got four or five actual NBA players, and then the rest are maybe six if you count uh, I'm not going to get into their individual guys actually but they've the 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 end of their bench is really really bad yeah. and doc had made some really curious moves over the summer to make it that way but i also think that like the Miami Heat did that too True. they had no bench you know for a large portion of that title run and still did well now obviously the heat aren't had more talent than the clippers did i think uh, up top but yeah. uh i i think you can get away with that but I agree that Doc Rivers has made some questionable acquisitions, especially the Austin Rivers one. Right. Austin Rivers is not a good NBA player. Yeah, and they basically sent a pick for that. Yeah, they to, did. To get him, That's and that's to me, that's ridiculous. The Clippers, the, either of the Clippers is the type of team, they're a bad matchup for the Jazz. I expect them to win that game because they blow out lesser teams, but they're not as good as some of the better teams. Makes sense. So overall, 2-1? and one? I think so, yeah. Makes sense. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for listening so much. This has been another great Salt City Hoop show. As always, you can read our content every day at saltcityhoops.com. We are the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Or follow me at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett. Thanks again for listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700.